yesterday morning at the top of the show, I referred to the president of Brazil, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, as a right wing leader. When I said it, I heard myself calling him a left wing leader. But for some reason, I said he was a right wing leader. My apologies. I misspoke. Lula is the leader of the left wing workers party in Brazil and has dedicated his life, almost died for the people. He was jailed for the people. He is most decidedly left wing. I don't know why. I said he's right wing. My apologies for misspeaking. And again, it is the Electoral Count Act of 1887, not 1867. It is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. If you ever hear me refer to the Electoral Count Act of 1867, what I'm trying to say is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. I don't know what's going on. I'm on pain medication for the kidney stones for some reason. I keep calling it the Electoral Count Act of 1867. It is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. All right. Also, finally, yesterday I butchered the name of one of my heroes, climate activist Greta Thunberg. It's Greta Thunberg. Not Marvin Hamlish or Guy Fieri or however I pronounced her name. It's Greta Thunberg, I think. Coming up. Hi. Coming up, Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to sound smart. She tried to give her audience at Turning Points USA a history lesson last week. And instead, she gave away the entire game. I'm being serious. It's incredible. She told the audience everything Republicans are not supposed to admit in public. I'll have more on this in a, in a few minutes. It's one of the most incredible crash and burns I've ever witnessed. Some of you might be familiar with Lee Atwater's deathbed confession. Lee Atwater was a right wing Republican operative cut from the same cloth as Karl Rove. And right after he got George Herbert Walker Bush elected president, he did this by relying on really invidious, racist attack ads, Willie Horton. He ended up with a brain tumor. And as he lay in the hospital, he offered up a famous deathbed confession. You should Google it. You should Google Lee Atwater's deathbed confession. It exposes who the Republicans really are. He says, you know, you can't say the N word anymore. So you say busing. You can't say you hate black people. So you say food stamps. It's worth looking up. Well, unlike Lee Atwater, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't have a brain tumor because that would require a brain. But she gave a speech last week and she busted the entire party. It's worse than Lee Atwater's deathbed confession. I'm amazed. I know some of you have already seen this. I'm amazed it's not being blasted all over the Internet and that the Democrats haven't put this in everybody's inbox. Because as far as I'm concerned, Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech at Turning Points, it's game, set, match for 2024. She exposes who the Republicans are and what they have in store for all of us. Basically, they want us all to starve. 
I'm not joking around. I'll have more on this incredible confession, an unwitting confession. She was, you know, she's stupid and she was trying to sound smart and she ended up showing the entire Republicans hand. It's pretty incredible. I'm going to show it a little later in context. Homeland, by the way, she wants to impeach Joe Biden and she wants to impeach this guy, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas, who testified before the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday amid Republican calls for both his resignation and impeachment. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, who never passed the bar despite going to law school. Did I ever mention that Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, couldn't pass the bar? Uh, He went to law school, but he's too stupid. He couldn't pass the bar. Have I ever mentioned that? Anyway, during the uh, hearings, during Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas's testimony, uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, who is too stupid to pass his bar exam, even though he went to law school, he berated the Homeland Security Secretary, telling him the border crisis is now the worst it's ever been, adding, quote, Numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. Well, actually, the number of migrants at the border is the lowest it's been in two years. It's down 30 percent since June alone. Yeah, numbers don't lie. Jim Jordan does. Jim Jordan does. During his testimony, Mayorkas did admit America's immigration system is broken. It's broken, but only for people who want to come into this country. It's not broken for slaughterhouses, construction firms and janitorial companies whose entire business models are predicated upon hiring frightened, undocumented workers who won't try to unionize or ask for time and a half when they work extra hours. No, it's not broken for Jim Jordan or the entire Republican Party who all need to stoke racism using immigrants as scapegoats for Republican policies that only serve the rich and powerful while destroying the lives of ordinary Americans who are distracted who are distracted into believing, no, it's the immigrants, it's the migrants, not the rich and powerful. It's the immigrants, it's the migrants who are taking their jobs or destroying our public schools and social safety net. While Republicans secretly try to destroy Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare, they spread lies trying to convince low information voters that America's social safety net is being exhausted by undocumented immigrants. First off, undocumented immigrants pay into Social Security which is more than we can say for most Republicans who don't pay their fair share of taxes. Most, if not all, undocumented workers pay into Social Security, even though they don't qualify for it. Secondly, as I said, the rich and the powerful are stripping our social safety net clean because they refuse to pay taxes. And even worse, they don't want a social safety net. The Republicans who are in the service of the rich and powerful, do not want a social safety net. You're not supposed to say that out loud. And this is Marjorie Taylor Greene saying what you're not supposed to say. Here she is thinking she's smart, 
But here she is giving away the Republican game. This is absolutely incredible. Many of you saw this last week. But here is Marjorie Taylor Greene giving her audience a turning points, a history lesson that reveals exactly what the entire Republican thinks and what they want for America, but won't admit it. Because how can you admit that you want us to starve? Marjorie? Lyndon B. Johnson is very similar to Joe Biden. How are they the same? Well, you know, Marjorie's going to lay some serious knowledge on us because she's putting on her fancy book smart reading glasses. Please continue, Professor Green. They're both Democrat socialists. Lyndon B. Johnson was the majority leader in the Senate. Does that sound familiar? No, it doesn't sound familiar. Uh, because Joe Biden was never the Senate majority leader in the Senate. So and neither one of them were socialists. But please continue, Professor Green. He was vice president to Kennedy. Joe was vice president to Obama. He was appointed as the president after JFK was assassinated. Then he was elected. His big socialist programs were the Great Society. The Great Society were big government programs to address education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and welfare, the Office of Economic Opportunity, and big labor and labor unions. Now, LBJ had the Great Society, but Joe Biden had Build Back Better, and he still is working on it. The largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started that LBJ expanded on and Joe Biden is attempting to complete socialism. I wish. But wait now, Marjorie, you say all this like it's a bad thing. You're saying the New Deal, Johnson's Great Society, Medicare, Medicaid. You say this is all bad. And you're saying that Joe Biden wants to be part of this FDR to Lyndon Johnson continuum. You're you're against this, which means you and the Republican Party would be against education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid food stamps and welfare, the Office of Economic Opportunity and big labor and labor unions. You are not supposed to tell that to everybody, Marjorie. Nobody is supposed to know the Republican Party wants us all to starve. Seriously. You see, Marjorie Taylor Greene is stupid and she doesn't know how to conceal her weapons. You don't tell people the Republicans want to decimate Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, food stamps, unions and the social safety net. You're, you're never supposed to say that out loud. You never tell the voters what you're planning. You don't want to give away the ending. It's supposed to be a surprise. You're supposed to tell the American voters that you're trying to save all these programs. That's the game plan. That's the that's the playbook. 
All these programs you want to destroy, you tell American voters you're trying to save them. And then you get elected saying you're going to save all these programs that Americans undecidedly love. And then when you get into power, you destroy them. You destroy all these programs by telling Americans you're saving them. Republicans are saving Medicare, right? They're doing it right now. They're saving Medicare by convincing unsuspecting Americans to sign up for Medicare Advantage, which is basically privatizing Medicare. So the health insurance companies can make more profits by killing grandma and grandpa. If you ever speak to your grandpa and grandma or your mother and father, tell them not to get on Medicare Advantage. The Republicans say we want to save the Veterans Administration by turning it over to privately run health insurance companies so that United Healthcare gets to do to our Vietnam vets what Ho Chi Minh only dreamed of. Marjorie Taylor Greene is unartful and she cannot keep a secret. She showed the Republican hand. Unlike Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, who believes all the same things as Marjorie Taylor Greene does. Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, they all want us to starve, but they do it artfully, deceptively. They don't show their hand the way Marjorie Taylor Greene just did. Listen to how Ron DeSantis artfully lies. I mean, frames it. Here he is on Fox telling everyone that he's going to protect Social Security. You don't say you're going to get rid of Social Security. You talk about wanting to protect it. That's how Republicans destroy Social Security, by convincing us they're going to protect it. Mein Fuhrer. I'm a governor of Florida. Of course, we're going to protect people's Social Security. Uh, my grandmother passed away when she was 91. That was her sole source of income. Yeah. And that's true for millions of seniors. And so that that goes without saying. So when people say that we're going to somehow cut seniors, so that is totally not true. See, that's how you do it, Marjorie. You don't admit that you're going to destroy Social Security. No, you're not going to cut Social Security. What he doesn't tell you is uh, no more cost of living increases for grandma and grandpa. But that doesn't mean we're we're cutting Social Security. It just means Social Security won't be keeping up with inflation. Kind of like the minimum wage. Republicans hate the minimum wage. They can't admit it. They can't admit that they hate the minimum wage. Herschel Walker admitted it. He was running for Senate in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene's state. When Herschel Walker was running for Senate in Georgia last year, he let it slip that he wants to get rid of the minimum wage because Republicans hate the minimum wage. And I kept playing that clip. I, I can't believe it didn't just spread across the Internet. Herschel Walker, Republican Senate candidate last year, admitted we want to get rid of the minimum wage. But, you know, you can't. You can't say that. So what you do is what the Republicans have been doing since 2009. You kill you kill the minimum wage through inflation. And this is exactly how they're going to kill Social Security. What you do to Social Security is what the Republicans have done to the minimum wage. They have killed the minimum wage. We do not have a minimum wage in America, even though everybody thinks we have one. The minimum wage has not been raised in 14 years. Minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. 
Let me repeat, minimum wage in America is $7.25 an hour, which means if you're, you know, uh, a single dad, a single mom, and you work a 40-hour week and want to spend some time with your family, if you earn, uh, if you work a 40-hour week, do the math, you end up with $290 a week. Hasn't been raised. Minimum wage has not been raised since July 24th, 2009. It's been almost exactly 14 years since the minimum wage was raised. And that's how Republicans killed the minimum wage. We still have a minimum wage, but Republicans who've always hated the minimum wage since Franklin Roosevelt came up with it, Republicans succeeded in destroying the minimum wage by not allowing it to be raised. They will never admit they want to destroy the minimum wage. They let inflation do their dirty work. $290 a week if you work 40 hours. But they insist you can't raise the minimum wage will cause inflation. That's what they want us to believe. And the same thing is with Social Security. They're not going to destroy Social Security the same way they haven't destroyed Medicare for all. I mean, they're not going to get rid of it. They're just not going to give you a cost of living income. They're, what, they, what they say is, and they're being honest, we're not going to touch Social Security for grandma and grandpa. If you're 71, I promise you, we're not going to touch your Social Security. And they're telling the truth. The same way they haven't touched the minimum wage. Whatever you're making today, you will make 20, 30, 40 years from now. We're not touching it. It's safe. What they mean is no cost of living adjustment. We're not going to touch your Social Security. That's what they're telling the seniors in Florida. Grandma, grandpa, if you're getting, I don't know, what is it, $1,800 a month today, we're not touching it. We promise in 30, 40 years you will still be making $1,800 a month. We, we're not touching your Social Security. But see how artful the Republicans are, thanks to people like Frank Luntz, who all of a sudden, by the way, Frank Luntz is worried about climate change. The guy who reintroduced the term climate change into our voc vocabulary because it sounded more anodyne than climate destruction. All of a sudden, Frank Luntz and his toupee are worried about climate catastrophe. I could tell you things about Frank Luntz that would shock you. Like, that's not a toupee. That's not a toupee. That's the shocking. No, I could tell you things about Frank once. Uh, well, let's go back to the artful Ron DeSantis. Uh, this is how he addressed grandma and grandpa to assure them we're not touching your Social Security the same way we're not touching Medicare for all. But what about the millennials, Right. Here we go. Here he is addressing the millennials. Uh, talking about making changes for people in their 30s or 40s so that the program's viable, you know, that, that's a much different thing. And that's something that, that I think that there's going to need to be discussions on. Yeah, we, we need to have discussions on making social, social security viable for people in their 30s and their 40s. You know, here's how to make social security viable for people in their 30s, their 40s, even for people who haven't been born yet. Leave it alone. Leave Social Security alone. 
and have cost of living adjustments. Social Security is already viable. It's never in trouble. It's a lie when they say it's in trouble. Social Security works. It works. But what Ron DeSantis and the Republicans want to do, besides starve us to death, what they want to do is privatize Social Security, turn it over to Wall Street, because he and his corporate cronies see this big pile of cash sitting in Social Security. And, you know, sometimes the federal government borrows from Social Security when we're running a budget deficit. That's how, you know, that's how unviable Social Security is. The federal government sometimes borrows from Social Security. It drives Republicans crazy to see a pile of cash sitting there that they can't get their hands on and they want their skim. I'm not exaggerating. This is the truth. They want their taste of that the same way they want their taste of Medicare through Medicare Advantage. There's all this money that they see sitting there at Medicare, which works perfectly fine compared to private health insurance. They see this pile of cash, our tax dollars sitting there. And people like Ron DeSantis and George W. Bush, when he tried to privatize so, uh, Medicare, they think, why should this go to the people who paid into it? What about no talent Wall Street charlatans? Shouldn't they be able to take a 20 to 30 percent skim off the top the way health insurance companies do? Shouldn't young people, when it comes to Medicare or Social Security, shouldn't they be, you know, shouldn't young people be? Shouldn't it be privatized so they can be talked into playing with their Social Security money or their Medicare savings account by making risky investments that, you know, getting egged on by idiot stockbrokers telling them to to bet their retirement on collateralized collateralized debt obligations? What could possibly go wrong? See, the people who donate to Ron DeSantis, who donate to Marjorie Taylor Greene, the people who run Turning Points USA, they hate the American people. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. They hate the American people. They want us to starve. They don't want a social safety net. They don't want people in their 60s, 70s or 80s retiring. They want grandma and grandpa working till they drop and, you know, grandma and grandpa, they're not going to work till they drop if Medicare and Social Security takes away all their worries. See, they depend. Republicans depend on keeping grandma and grandpa and all of us in a permanent state of terror. So those immigrants at the border crawling through barbed wire who are being denied drinking water in triple digit heat being thrown back into the Rio Grande and told to swim back to Mexico. The way Greg Abbott and the Republicans in Texas treat those migrants is exactly how they treat citizens of the United States who aren't billionaires. There is no difference. If you're not a billionaire, all right, let's say 20 million, if you don't have $20 million, Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott and pretty much the entire Republican Party, they see no difference between you 
and a pregnant migrant woman sitting in a for-profit detention center with no air conditioning. If you're not worth a couple of million dollars, you're just a natural resource to be mined for cheap labor. You're supposed to work just enough so the ruling class, the billionaires, can saddle you with just enough credit card debt that you end up paying the rich and the powerful instead of it being the other way around. You work to pay the rich and powerful, to pay off your debt, your credit card debt, your student loan debt, your, your uh, auto loan debt. This is how it works in America. It was set up back when Reagan deregulated the financial sector. This is the way it works, and this is the way it works. The rich and the powerful pay Americans just enough, right? $7.25 an hour minimum wage. Americans, can they get paid just enough. And whatever they earn, they pay back to the credit card companies and, of course, the landlords. Rent, right? It goes to rent and the credit cards. Since Reagan, the plan has been to keep Americans in debt and pay them just enough money so they can service the debt, so they can kind of pay their rent. Landlords, they don't want you able to afford a home. They want you renting. The banks and the credit card companies want you making just enough money so that you think you can afford it by putting it on your credit card when, in fact, you can't afford it. And by the time you pay that purchase off, you've ended up paying because of the interest tacked on. You've ended up paying three times as much for what it originally cost. Every time I try to buy a pair of pants, cheap pants or cheap, a cheap shirt. Every time I go into, say, the Gap or a Banana Republic, the first thing they say to me as they're ringing me up is, you, you want to take out a credit card? They cannot wait to give me a credit card. And they'll say, we'll give you a 20% discount on top of the 40% discount we're already giving you on this, this shirt. Do you know why the pants are so cheap at the Gap and the Banana Republic? Partly because they're made in a sweatshop in Bangladesh, but mostly, mostly because the department stores trick you into taking out a credit card because they know if you buy those pants on credit, by the time you end up paying those pants off, that $20 pair of pants, that great bargain, will end up costing you $60. They tack on enough interest. You think you're getting a bargain. How do they do it? How do they sell you a pair of pants for $20? Because it's going to take you four years to pay it back, and those pants end up costing you $60. Give Americans just enough money at their jobs, and of course, a line of credit, so they think they can afford it. Have, you know, Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey doing commercials for credit. Have Samuel Jackson, you know, people we love doing credit cards, commercials for credit cards. We trust Alec Baldwin, Tina Fey and Samuel Jackson. Why would they lie to us? Why would they want to get us into a perpetual cycle of debt? 
And what happens is you get tricked into buying that $20 pair of pants, thinking you're being smart. And three years later, it's 60 bucks. And whose fault is it? Not Visa's, not MasterCard's, not Tina Fey, Alec Baldwin's or Samuel Jackson's. It's your fault. You're the one who's irresponsible, right? People in debt, it's always their fault. The ruling elite has this down to a science. They trick the American people. They force the American people to work for $290 a week. But there are things we desperately need. There are things they convince us we desperately need. But then there are things we really do desperately need. Food, rent, clothing, forget recreation. You need daycare and, of course, health insurance. So what do you do? Especially when your kid gets sick, you do what every American does. Not every American, only the Americans I care about. You do what every American does. You put it on your credit card, right? $290 a week. You got a sick kid. You go without food, right? And you put your kid's insulin on a credit card. That's what we do here in America, the richest country in the history of civilization. The billionaires, the ruling class, Republicans more so than Democrats, but never forget that Joe Biden is from Delaware, which is, you know, credit card central. The, the ruling class, they are literally mining the American people, mining them. They are drilling the American people for money. They're getting American people to work pretty much for free. You know, uh, I hate to trivialize slavery. I want to be careful here, but... Getting paid $290 a week, I, I, I would have to crunch the numbers. Uh, I, I suspect uh, owning a slave in the antebellum South, and I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but I suspect it was more expensive in real dollars than $290 a week to own a slave. I think I don't know. I don't know. Well, they work for free, so that's but isn't two hundred ninety dollars a week kind of working for free? And Walmart and McDonald's aren't providing housing the way I, I probably I want to be careful here. But uh, if you're making two hundred ninety dollars a week, which is what minimum wage here is in America, you're working for free. And whatever money you do earn, you're paying it to the banks to maintain your line of credit. You're paying it to the health insurance companies and you're paying it to the landlords. It is neo-feudalism. End stage capitalism. We all thought, oh, it's going to lead to communism. No, it's and end stage capitalism leads to neo-feudalism. This is not me, you know, trying to be cute. This, look around. You know, it, it, this, all this goes hand in hand with the authoritarian playbook that uh, Project Democracy has put out. And I've been quoting. Uh, this is how this is how it's going. This is the truth. This is the truth. I'm not being cute here. Those migrants at the border that Ron DeSantis tricked into taking a flight 
They tricked them into a, a plane ride to Martha's Vineyard. Those migrants, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, ships to New York and California. Those migrants are you and me. Those migrants are you and me. The people who own this country don't care if those migrants down along the Rio Grande die from heat stroke in an unventilated for-profit detention center as long as that for-profit detention center turns a profit. They don't care about the migrants. They think they deserve to die. You've seen that, right? You've, you hear the reports of Greg Abbott telling Texas State Border Patrol to deny these people water in triple-digit weather. They don't care the same way they don't care if you and I die because, you know, they don't care if you say we're being ripped off by the health insurance companies. They're killing us. They don't care. My insulin is too expensive. My my I'm starving to death to pay for my child's insulin. They don't care. Uh, guns. They don't care. Uh, they, they want gun manufacturers to sell more guns. There is no difference between those migrants at the border and you and me, because Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, who work for the people who own America, they don't care if we live or die. That's not an exaggeration. They don't care if we live or die the same way our government is more than willing to give arms to any country that needs it, and they don't care who lives or dies so long as other countries are keeping our economy afloat by buying our cluster bombs. They do not care if we live or die. If they did, we'd have Medicare for all. They'd raise the minimum wage. We are just a, a source of cheap labor. Our job is to rack up student loan debt by the lie that going to college will, you know, increase your earning power. Uh, rack up student loan debt, credit card debt. Don't deny yourself anything. You deserve stuff that you don't need. And of course, you have to have a car in America because mass transit is purposely, purposely non-existent so you have to buy a car to work so you have to take out car loans what, what are car loans now or a trillion dollars a trillion five student loan debt tr trillion maybe two trillion credit card debt how many trillions is credit card debt uh and that's that's what keeps wall street humming along because we don't make anything really here in america i mean we make some things but what we really do you know, something like 35% of our economy is finance, which makes nothing. It just trades debt. That's our job as Americans to keep Wall Street humming along. If you think I'm overstating the problem, uh, union membership is at the lowest it's been in more than a century. We keep hearing about these strikes, right? SAG-AFTRA. Writers Guild, Starbucks, Amazon, Starbucks and Amazon has yet to recognize the unions, even though they're in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. It doesn't matter. Starbucks, 
Amazon, they own the government. Who's going to prosecute them? But we keep hearing about union activism here in America when, in fact, union membership here in America is the lowest it's been in a century. Okay, the minimum wage is two hundred ninety dollars a week in real dollars. We're asking uh, Americans, or at least the Americans I care about, in real dollars to live on uh, like what people uh, like, like a, a set. It's like it's like it hasn't been raised in real dollars since like 1947. Uh, 40% of Americans who work for a living, who have health care, say, yeah, I have health care, but I can't afford to use it. Uh, you think it's an exaggeration when I say they don't care if you live or die? They don't. They, they would fix climate change if they cared if you live or die. Whatever means more money for them, that's all they care about. Because they're, they're immune as far as they're concerned. They're off on their island. They're immune to all this. And... Just out of sight, out of mind. They do not care if we live or die. If keeping you alive means you'll pay rent, make the minimum payments on your credit cards and work the cash register at Walmart without trying to unionize, then, yeah, go ahead and live. But if you get sick and start cutting into the profits for United Healthcare then please die. Please go die. Whatever you're suffering from, please just leave us alone and die because we're a for-profit company. We're United Healthcare, And if we keep you alive, that cuts into our profits. So please die. If you're a seven-year-old elementary school student in Texas who gets in the way of an assault weapon firing off 60 rounds in 30 seconds, please die. Please Please don't eat into the profits of Marty Daniel, the CEO of Daniel Defense, because his profits come first. That's not uh, I'm not being artful here. This is the truth. As you get older, you begin to meet certain people, right? You have friends who become a certain you realize that the people at the top in the Republican Party do not care if we live or die. When you look at Nixon and Kissinger planning to to bomb the mines of North Vietnam, you know, they're being told a million people are going to die. And they've and Nixon's saying on tape, I can't be the first president to lose a war. Let's bomb the mines. They were, Kissinger and Nixon were, were going to go ahead with that. And then the protest movement made it impossible. That's for another discussion. By the way, Henry Kissinger uh, is 100 years old. Even Satan doesn't want Henry Kissinger. The Republicans, the richest 1%, they want the vast preponderance of Americans to be as frightened and pliable and compliant as undocumented workers, because America, since its founding, has always been about one thing and one thing only, 
free labor. First, it was the indentured servants, but they got freed after seven years. So then it was the, the slaves, the African slaves. This country was built on free labor and it continues to thrive on free labor. If you think I'm exaggerating, you're an effing moron. The minimum wage has not been raised since 2009. It is $7.25 an hour. Republicans, they can't wait to use the word free. What they really mean is they want you and me to work for free, which is why the immigration crisis will never be solved, because the last thing the rich and the powerful want, the last thing the Republicans who do the dirty work of the rich and powerful, the last thing the Republicans want is for Americans to realize who's actually responsible for our crumbling infrastructure, lousy public schools, and of course, our crappy health care. It isn't the undocumented workers. It's the people hiring the undocumented workers to build their second, third, and fourth vacation homes. Their business model, the business model of the rich and powerful here in America, is to bring these undocumented migrants in, keep them terrified, keep them frightened, so they work, no unions, and of course, there's wage theft. They want these migrants. They say they don't. They want these migrants because wage theft is the business model here in America. And it is so, so easy to steal the wages of someone who's terrified you're going to call ICE. Fed chair Jerome Powell for some reason, has not been arrested for insider trading. Look that one up. Uh, he's a uh, Trump appointee, and Biden kept him on. Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Wednesday raised interest rates to the highest level in 22 years. This is now the 11th time since 2022 that Jerome Powell has lifted interest rates. But inflation is now down to 3%. You wouldn't know that if you watch Fox News or listen to the Republicans, but inflation has been tamed. It's down to 3%. But Powell, Fed Chair Powell, says he won't be satisfied until inflation is down to 2% as he desperately tries to kickstart a recession that will leave millions of Americans out of work, clamoring for jobs, and willing to do anything for whatever the boss will pay him. This is the plan. Drive up interest rates, suffocate the economy, so management can say, hey, you know, ooh, we were so close to giving you a raise and recognizing this union and raising the minimum wage, but look at the economy. Now is not the right time. Look at the economy. We're in a recession. We can't recognize a union or give you a raise or pay a livable wage, make the minimum wage a livable wage, because it's never the right time to give Americans a raise. Never. It is in other countries, not here in the richest country in the history of civilization. Rising interest rates now means the credit card debt Americans hold will become even more expensive, right? 
You owe money on your credit card? What are you paying? 18, 19% now goes up to 20, 22, sometimes 33%. I saw my credit card statement. They said, uh, I was reading the terms of the credit card. It can go as high as something like 35%, unless you're a veteran, in which case it's only 29%. You, you know, nothing like patriotism, right? It makes my, we're only going to gouge you at 29%. I think you can get a better deal from the Gambino family than you can from MasterCard. Uh, so he's raising interest rates, which means credit card debt that Americans hold becomes even more expensive. And that's great news for Visa, MasterCard, the banks, Banana Republic, which wants me to take out a card because it, it doesn't cost them more money when they lend it. They just get to they get to rack up more profits. They get to charge more for the money. And if you do have money for the first time in a long time, you can actually collect more than five percent interest by putting your extra cash into a savings account, which is great news for all the douchebags who have savings accounts, because that's who Jerome Powell is working for. Half this country can't come up with $1,000 for an emergency. Half this country doesn't have $1,000 in liquid cash for an emergency. So you think most Americans, or at least the Americans I care about, you think most Americans give a rat's ass about being able to get higher interest rates in a savings account? The 100 million Americans who could vote but don't. There are 100 million Americans who could vote but don't you think right now they're 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 saying, hey, that's great. I can get five percent buying a certificate of deposit over a chase. No, they don't care. Which is why they stay home on Election Day. Hundred million people here in America stay home on Election Day because Jerome Powell, the unelected chairman of the Federal Reserve, controls our financial destiny and he ain't working for the 100 million Americans who stay home on Election Day. He's working for the banks and only for the banks, because the Federal Reserve is a bank and Jerome Powell is a banker. When the Fed raises interest rates, it benefits the credit card companies and rich people who need a safe play, a safe place to hoard their cash. This was never about bringing down inflation. It's about bringing down wages even lower if such a thing is possible. I don't know if you can get it below $290 a week, $7.25 an hour. It is the job of Jerome Powell to slow the economy, to create more debt. When you slow the economy, that creates more debt for the government. More debt for consumers. And that's his job. Create debt because banks and Wall Street and our government, they make money. They literally make money. They create more money by creating debt. So let's talk. How much time do I have left? All right. Let's talk about inflation. There's a term out there called greedflation. Greedflation. I love that term. I told you a year ago at the height of this inflation that there was a very simple way to determine 
whether inflation is being caused by supply chain issues, COVID, the war in Ukraine, and of course, government spending. We got to always got to hear how government spending, the social safety net creates inflation. Republicans can't wait to spread that canard. Uh, or is inflation being caused by greedy companies using the specter of inflation? Everybody's talking about inflation. So let's raise prices. Let's just raise prices. And there's uh, there's a very easy way to find out whether or not it's greedflation. We're all economically illiterate. We don't know how to read a spreadsheet or a financial statement. So we can't. We think we can't prove whether or not greedflation actually exists, but it does. Uh, I said to you a year ago, pay attention to earnings season. Every three months, all the corporations that are publicly traded have to open up the books and tell us how much they made and what they were charging. And nobody pays attention to this. They don't want us to. But if you paid attention to this, if we weren't economically illiterate, we would know that Jerome Powell is an effing liar and that we are seeing greedflation, that the three percent, which isn't so bad, doesn't justify raising interest rates again and punishing the 99 percent. The inflation we're seeing is greed. It is greed. It's why Biden, instead of having Jerome Powell raise interest rates, Biden should step up and do wage and price freezes the way Nixon did. Right. But, you know, can't do that because that would actually help the 100 million people who could vote, but don't vote. The last thing the people who control our government want is the 100 million Americans to think they have some skin in the game, right? You institute wage and price freezes, keep interest rates low. 100 million people who don't vote are only going to go, hey, this government works for me. I'm going to get involved. That would be bad news for the ruling class. So pay attention to earnings seasons. It's uh if companies are reporting record profits during inflation, that means they're profiting off inflation. I told you this a year ago, if a company reports record profits during a period of high inflation, it means inflation is caused by greed. That means they're using inflation to get away with raising prices, right? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody thinks there's inflation, might as well raise prices. So uh, if you look at earnings season this past quarter and a couple of quarter, you know, the quarter before that, you're seeing record profits, if not record profits, incredible profits. And during the earnings calls uh, that the CEOs of these companies make to investors, a lot of these CEOs, when they're boasting about their record profits. They love to talk about something called pricing power, pricing power. You know, and that sounds good to investors, pricing power. 
But what pricing power actually means is I, as the CEO of the company, bought up the competition. We either have a monopoly or duopoly, and we can pretty much get away with charging whatever we want because consumers have nowhere else to go. That's what pricing power means. So you want to bring down inflation. You think 3% is uh, too much? Leave the interest rates alone and break up all these big companies. Make, make it smaller. Make it so smaller companies have to compete for your business. And what's the number one way a company competes for your business? Lowering prices. No. Republicans, Jerome Powell. Actually, Jerome Powell doesn't say inflation uh, is caused by government spending. His one saving grace, Jerome Powell, has said that the government spending that went on during and after COVID, well, COVID is still going on, but uh, he said the Inflation Reduction Act, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, nothing to do with inflation. Uh, that's his one saving grace, telling the truth about that. But, you know, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, the Republicans are liars who really do want us to starve to death. They want to get rid of the social safety net and they will lie and say all this government spending that Joe Biden has initiated with, you know, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. They lie and say the this Keynesian economics is creating inflation. It's not true. And even Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, said so. Doesn't matter. Republicans and corporate Democrats will say, will say anything to justify getting rid of the social safety net, making us starve so that we're frightened and desperate. Because when everyone is starving, when everyone is frightened and desperate, we do what we're told. This is the truth. They want us to starve. Please, sir, may I have some more? Please, sir, please, can I have some more? Thank you. The New York Times, for example, if you think I'm just, you know, filling time here, the New York Times on Wednesday reported that companies in the consumer brand sector are now reporting record profits while at the same time raising prices. This is greedflation. Why are they raising prices? Read the article in the New York Times. Why are they raising prices? Because they have pricing power. They have the pricing power to charge what they want because they bought up all the competition. There are no supply chain issues anymore. This isn't about shortages of commodities due to COVID or the war in Ukraine. This is about CEOs realizing that Americans think inflation is a real thing. So we can jack up the price of things and blame inflation. You know, blame the inflation on government spending. We have to charge you more for M&Ms because Joe Biden wants the bridges to stay up. Uh, you know, they, they don't want the double deck highways pancaking 
your parents. So you're going to have to pay more for M&Ms. That's what they're basically saying. Right. It's not true. It's not greed. That's not, uh, you know, we have record profits, but it's not greed. It's working for the for these companies, for Coca-Cola, Pepsi and Unilever, for example. These are multinational food conglomerates that make garbage food that causes diabetes, strokes, cancer and heart disease, not to mention having an enormous carbon footprint by leave by uh, by making us rely on dairy products and plastic. Right. Uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi and Unilever. They make all the things that are killing us, except tobacco. Uh, Maybe they own a tobacco company. I wouldn't be surprised. If Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or Unilever makes it, don't buy it. It's bad for your heart, your kidneys, your blood sugar, and of course the planet. But they figured out a way to get you addicted to all their shit by finally calibrating just the right combination of sugar, fat, and salt so that you can't help yourself. And because you can't help yourself, because you're addicted to this shit, you'll pay whatever they charge. These Ghanifs at Unilever raised their prices by 8% just this last quarter, 8%. The pigs at Pepsi raised their prices by 15% last quarter. Coke raised its prices. And by the way, you'll, you'll notice there's less in the bag. They raised the prices and there's less in the bag. Guess what happened after they raised their prices? There's a way to prove greedflation. They have to report their their profits, record profits. Profits are skyrocketing. Coke says its profits last quarter were up 33 percent over the same quarter a year ago. Unilever's profits are up 20 percent over the same quarter a year ago. Pepsi says its profits doubled over a year ago. And guess what? Profits are at record highs, but that doesn't necessarily mean more people are buying this crap. They're just paying more for it. If we weren't financially illiterate, we could read their earnings reports and learn this, that people may be buying less of this crap, but the profits are up because they're charging more for it. That's why the oil companies made so much money last year. They just doubled the prices. They realized that the oil company said, what are we drilling for oil for? Let's just charge more for it. So they stopped drilling for oil and just raised prices. Drill, baby, drill. No, you can make more money by creating an artificial scarcity. And, and just charging more for oil. Uh, this crap, you know, if you can sell something that people are addicted to, like tobacco, oil, or crappy food, uh, the sky's the limit in what you can charge. Uh, cigarettes, 
Coca-Cola, Doritos, they're poison. And the only way these companies can get you to buy this toxic sludge is by making you crave it. They manipulate the sugar, the fat, the salt, so that receptors in our brain crave this the same way we crave heroin. It lights up the same spot in our brain. Nicotine, heroin, sugar, salt, and fat lights up the same parts of our brains that heroin does. This isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. It's called food science. It's science. Americans go to college to learn how to do this stuff. How do I make something that has no nutritional value, that is cheap to produce, but Americans will become convinced that they can't live without it because they're addicted to it. People earn degrees in food science. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is food science. There are people who earn PhDs rearranging carbohydrates at a molecular level to turn sugar, salt, and fat into heroin. That's where the money is, getting Americans addicted to something that will kill them. Coca-Cola can't beat the real thing, right? The real thing. It's the real thing. Really? It's real? Coca-Cola is real. It's probably as real as inflation instead of greedflation. Coca-Cola, as you all know, is the original gangster when it comes to manipulating your taste buds to trick your kidneys into craving this poison. It used to be that cocaine was in Coke. You all know that. It's the last time Coke was honest about the product. Uh, But the government stopped that. So Coke had to figure something else out, and they began marketing Coke as a thirst quencher. Right? It used to be a medicine But then they had to take the cocaine out. They said, what can we how can we sell this shit? Let's call it a a a thirst quencher. And how can we sell a lot of it? Well, we have to sell people a thirst quencher that makes them thirstier. They market Coke as cool, refreshing. They convince you that it's going to quench your thirst. But. If you're stupid enough, self-destructive enough, sadly addicted enough, you will notice that the more Coca-Cola you drink, the thirstier you become. Why is that? Food science, not a conspiracy theory, science. The geniuses at Coke have fine-tuned the right combination of salt and sugar So that we have no idea that when we're drinking Coca-Cola, we're actually drinking salt water. (laughs) It's kind of, you know, it's almost admirable. Uh, We have no idea that Coca-Cola is salt water, which makes us thirstier. And sugar disguises the taste of salt. Okay. Uh, Oversalt your food to the point where it's inedible, and then add sugar, and you can eat it. One can of Coke 
has 39 grams of sugar, and that's a lot of sugar. Nobody's craving that much sugar. So why is all this sugar in Coca-Cola? Because you need that much sugar to cover up the 45 milligrams of salt, right? It's about the salt to make you thirstier. They want you drinking more than one can of Coke when you're thirsty, And the way they do that is they put salt in the Coke and then cover the taste of salt up with lots and lots of sugar. They call it sodium. I guess that sounds a little more thirst quenching. Sodium sounds better than salt. They put just enough salt in Coke and then flood your taste buds with sugar so you can't taste the salt and you have no idea that you're drinking salt water. You have no idea. Why, no matter how many cans of Coke you keep drinking, you keep getting thirstier. So here's the truth. If you want to save money, if you want to lose weight, don't listen to me. I have no idea. But here's a good idea. And check with your doctor, check with a nutritionist. Never get medical advice from me or anybody other than a doctor. So ask a doctor or a nutritionist about what I'm about to tell you. Drink water. I wish I could do that, but uh, I have too many temptations. But if you only drink water, you will live forever. Drink water. When it comes to hydration, and I check with a doctor first because I'm an idiot. But the only thing you need is water. Everything else when it comes to hydration, everything else from juice to Gatorade, it's poison. You don't need juice. You don't need smoothies. All you need is water. If you eat fresh fruits and vegetables, all you should be drinking is water, period. Anything more than water and check with a nurse, check with a nutritionist, check with a doctor. But I'm telling you, if you're eating fruits and vegetables, anything other than water is extraneous. But we're not supposed to say that because Pepsi and Unilever and Coca-Cola, these three multinational conglomerates... They make trillions over a 10-year period. We're talking about trillions of dollars selling you soda, energy drinks, chips, and ice cream that are just as dangerous, if not more so, than tobacco. And everyone knows this. Heart disease, diabetes, cancer, obesity. It's all caused primarily by sugar, salt, and fat. Yes, tobacco plays a huge role in uh, cancer and heart disease, lack of exercise, and of course, pollution. But the American diet, sugar, salt, and fat, they are the iron triangle of America's food industry. They are the iron triangle that decreases our life expectancy. Like tobacco, you know how they manipulated the nicotine levels so you would smoke more cigarettes? The people who run Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Unilever, 
they have manipulated the salt, the fat, the sugar to get us all addicted to something that kills us the same way the tobacco industry manipulated the nicotine. And because we're addicted to this stuff and they buy up the competition, they can charge whatever they want and they do. You can't beat the real thing. That's what Coca-Cola says. Well, they're trying to convince us that inflation is real. It's not. It's greed. It's just greed. Record profits means rising prices. Greed. Ben and Jerry's. The politically correct ice cream, all about peace, love, and rainbows. Don't forget diversity, equity, Bernie Sanders, Vermont, save the planet. Oh, how they want to save the planet. Ben and Jerry's, good company, corporate responsibility. No, they sold out. There is no Ben and Jerry's. It's owned by Unilever. Ben and Jerry's is now just smoke and mirrors. It's just an exercise in branding. They're mass marketing an idea that no longer exists. And it didn't exist when it when we thought it existed. Ben and Jerry's, their heart was never in the right place. You can't have your heart in the right place if what you are selling causes heart disease. Who are we kidding here? Ice cream is poison. And yes, I'm a lot of fun at parties. Please invite me to your party so I can comment on the hors d'oeuvres and why it's bad for you and the planet. I'm a lot of fun to be around. Who are we kidding about ice cream? It's poison. It's sugar. It's fat. It's salt. And more importantly, it's dairy, which is one of the primary sources of greenhouse gases. Cow belches. Not cow farts, by the way. Cow belches. It's not the cows farting. It's their belches. They're belching up methane, the most intractable of all greenhouse gases. Methane. We didn't know that until recently, but methane, it's what's eating up the planet. And that's what those cows, you know, from Ben and Jerry's, peace, love, save the planet, all this ice cream, those cows that keep Ben and Jerry's and ice cream, they're producing methane and it's killing us. Even worse, dairy farms are the most sadistic of all factory farms. So your ice cream comes from a dairy farm and we always think, oh, that's can't be that bad. It's a dairy farm in Vermont. Ron Howard owns a place in Vermont. Dairy farms are the most sadistic of all factory farms. When a cow gives birth, the first thing they do is they check to see if it's a boy or a girl. And if it's a boy, that means it's going to be a bull. And factory farms don't want bulls. Bulls are problematic. They don't know how to behave in a workplace. They're violent and nobody needs their semen. There was a time when we all needed a bull semen. Not anymore. 
factory farms pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for world-class, state-of-the-art bull semen from Chile in Argentina. They don't need the semen from some schleppy bull from Arkansas who's been raised on antibiotics and Monsanto's weed killer. Here's a fact. Most veal comes from young male calves of dairy breeds, which are not used for breeding. Let me repeat this. When you eat veal, what you're eating most of the time is a young male calf, uh, which is not being used for breeding. When a cow gives birth to a boy, a bull, a baby bull, the first thing the factory farm says is kill it, murder it. It's a boy. But that's too brutal. So they scream veal. That sounds better. Veal. We've got ourselves veal. When you eat veal, you're eating a baby boy cow. Think about that. You're eating a baby boy cow. Not only that, but they also ripped that baby boy from the mother. And she's, you know, I don't know if she watches it get slaughtered, but they start squeezing her udders for the milk. All that milk that's supposed to go to the baby boy cow who's been turned into veal, the factory farms just keep pumping the mommy's udders to produce milk while she's crying. The mommy is crying, missing her baby who's been slaughtered for veal. And they just keep pumping her udders. By the way, this is what I told my kids while they were growing up. These were bedtime stories that I would read to my kids. And uh, they're now vegan. They don't talk to me anymore, but they are vegan. These are actual stories. I would, I'm not joking around. My kids are vegan, and this is what I told them before Child Protective Services came and took them away. Your kids need to know this about veal and dairy. The, the baby boy cow is ripped from the mother, and then they just start squeezing the mommy's udders to produce milk that's not going to go to the baby cow because he's dead, he's veal. And instead, that milk is used to produce milk, yogurt, Ben and Jerry's ice cream and cheese. It was supposed to go to the baby, but the baby's now dead. And the mothers, whose udders are being squeezed for the milk, she's sad and depressed because you ate her baby boy. That's what ice cream is. That's what ice cream is. You got to kill baby boys to get ice cream. Now, vegetarians like me who eat dairy think, well, it's less cruel than actually killing a cow or eating a steak. Turns out, you know, we're deluding ourselves here because I am a vegetarian and I do eat cheese and when I'm angry and I want to lash out at the world, I punish myself by eating ice cream because it's safer. You don't get arrested when you're angry if you punish yourself, right? Eat ice cream, punish yourself instead of lashing out at the world. That way you don't end up in jail. Um, turns out 
sadly, eating cheese, eating ice cream, just as bad as eating a steak, maybe more cruel. Because did I mention the dairy from factory farms comes from mommy cows whose baby boys were ripped away from them and then slaughtered? And then they milk the mommy cow. They take all the milk that was supposed to go to the baby boy cow. And instead, they turn it into ice cream and climate catastrophe. Did I ever mention that to you? They keep the females because you can inseminate them and, you know, get more dairy out of them. But if you're a baby boy, if you're a baby bull, you're veal. There's your lesson on inflation, folks. I, I make you should invite me to a party. And just, you know, I am great at dinner parties because if you think I don't talk this way at dinner parties, you're sorely mistaken, which is why I'm all alone in this world. I am a vegetarian. I'll be honest with you. I'm a vegetarian. And I would say on a good week, six, five to six days out of the week, I'm, I'm vegan. But when you're traveling and you're hungry and you're tempted, sometimes cheese is the only answer. I'm no saint. Probably better than most of you. <laughs> but I'm no saint. Uh, I didn't mean to be arrogant, but I do kind of believe that the measure of a human being is whether or not they're vegan. And I fall short. Uh, nobody's better than anybody. Unless you're a vegan, like a real like my friend Mark Thompson, he's like a full bore vegan and he's better than I am. Um, if you're a vegan, if you're 100 percent completely vegan, if it's just a plant based diet, if there's no death in your system. You are morally, intellectually and physically superior to everyone else. That's how I take the measure of a human being. It really does start with what you ingest. You can say, you know, you're against the oil companies, but what's your diet? Are you are you a vegan? Because you're just as bad. That's the inconvenient truth about climate change. You know, it's not you shouldn't be recycling. That's bullshit. Switch to a plant-based diet. Recycling's bullshit. I'll talk about that. I've known that for decades. Uh, plant-based diet is the answer. Uh, if you can go a year eating nothing but plants, you are on a higher evolutionary rung than everybody else. And I love my Republican friends who say, you know, I love the taste of meat. I can't help it. It's my ancestors. Uh, you know, you go back 50, this is what they say. You go back 50,000 years, our ancestors ate meat. It's human nature to eat meat. To which I reply, usually at a party, when people says, you know, when I'm ruining a steak dinner and they go, hey, it's human nature. Our ancestors ate meat. And I say, you know what? You're right. 
by the way, your wife is very attractive. Do you mind if I club her over the head and rape her where they keep the coats while you're talking? Do you mind if I just club your wife over the head, drag her to where the coats are being kept and rape her? Because that's human nature, too. I mean, that's when, you know, when you were eating meat 50,000 years ago, that was what uh, people did. Is it OK with you? Uh, and I have said that at parties. <laughs> I've said that at parties. Societies evolve and people evolve. We're, we're Hopefully we're not the same people we were 50,000 years ago. People evolve. Some of us do. Maybe uh, I should try, try evolving and learning to keep my mouth shut at work or at parties where nobody wants to hear my bullshit. We are days, if not hours, away from special counsel Jack Smith handing down indictments, charging Donald Trump for the role he played on and in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection. This is what we know so far. Donald Trump on Tuesday said he received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith informing him that he is the target of an investigation and Trump has been invited to testify before the grand jury. As far as we know, Trump has declined that offer. He will not testify and is now awaiting his arrest. There are reports that Trump's arrest will take place in Washington, D.C., unlike Trump's previous arrest, which took place inside a Miami courtroom. The target letter reportedly caught Donald Trump's attorneys by surprise. There is some reporting that Donald Trump's lawyers expected and were reassuring Trump that he would only be named as an unindicted co-conspirator for whatever charges Jack Smith was planning to hand down for January 6th. But it now appears that Trump is being targeted specifically for January 6th with no other Trump White House officials or associates receiving letters informing them that they should expect an indictment. It is believed Trump will be arrested late this week and charged with some sort of federal crimes for the role he played leading up to and on January 6th. Now, I suspect Trump will be arrested on Friday so Special Counsel Jack Smith can control the news cycle throughout the weekend. Nothing else happens on Saturday or Sunday. So arresting Trump late Friday night would give the entire country time for all of this to uh, to sink in. Now, according to ABC News and the Wall Street Journal, the target letter, which was delivered to Trump, I believe on Sunday, the target letter informed the president and his lawyers that Jack Smith is focusing on three specific federal statutes. One, witness tampering. Two, conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States and an obscure law dating back to Reconstruction, deprivation of rights under color of law. You're not supposed to know <laughs> what that means, but I will uh, 
try to explain it to you as best I can. And of course, there is the possibility of wire fraud, which is not mentioned in the target letter. So one is witness tampering. The other is conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States. That would be the fake elector scheme. And the third is deprivation of rights under color of law. Deprivation of rights under color of law sounds confusing. It dates back to uh, right after the Civil War. And I'll get to that in a second. Now, there are some who are suggesting that special counsel Jack Smith, despite it not being mentioned in the target letter, uh, there are some suggesting that the special counsel could surprise everyone by charging Donald Trump with wire fraud, even though wire fraud has not been mentioned in the target letter. If Trump isn't indicted this time around on wire fraud, There are other indictments that Jack Smith will be handing down uh, throughout the year. If wire fraud isn't uh, if if Trump isn't charged with wire fraud this time around, wire, wire fraud, as I understand it, remains very much on the table because there are legal scholars who believe Trump's fundraising that took place right after he lost the 2020 presidential election in the lead up to January 6th. That fundraising constitutes wire fraud. Now, Trump has a very sophisticated fundraising operation that relies on small, low information donors who have no idea that their money is being used to pay not just Trump's legal fees, But the fees of his loyal employees who are also being forced to testify before the January 6th committee and, of course, these grand juries. We know that Trump's Save America Super PAC paid the legal fees for two key witnesses in the mishandling of classified documents indictment that came down this year. Both Cash Patel, he's one of Trump's closest advisors in the White House, and Trump's valet, Walt Nauta, in 2022, they were both represented by the legal team of Brand Woodward, who reportedly received more than $120,000 from Trump's super PAC to handle the legal fees for Walt Nauta who, as you know, was indicted along with Trump for mishandling classified material and Cash Patel. Cash Patel. Again, his legal fees were paid for by Trump's super PAC, which might explain why Cash Patel took the fifth when he was first brought before Jack Smith's grand jury. He's getting his legal fees paid by Donald Trump. Walt Nauta, Trump's valet, was indicted along with Trump for mishandling classified documents down in Miami. Remember that? Not as legal fees we know were paid by Trump's super PAC, which has also paid the legal fees for Trump's former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino. Now, according to reporting in the Washington Post, Trump's super PAC has spent close to $10 million on legal fees since Trump left office. As of last October, 
Trump's PAC had a $70 million war chest, and it is estimated that 14% of that has been budgeted to cover Trump's legal fees, as well as the legal fees for Trump associates who are not going to testify against him because Trump is paying their legal fees. Trump, by law, is free to spend that super PAC money any way he wants, even though the small donors who contribute have no idea that some of their money, about 14 percent of that money, is going towards a supposed billionaire, supposed billionaire's legal fees, as well as the legal fees for his associates. Trump is by law permitted to pay the legal fees of former associates who, when forced to testify, have an opportunity to flip, you know, turn state's evidence, become a witness for the prosecution. But Trump is paying their legal fees and flipping on Trump is expensive because then Trump stops paying your legal fees. If you turn on Trump, you're on your own. We're talking hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Uh, So Trump can purchase the silence of his associates without ever having to tell them to shut up. All he has to do is just say, let me cover your legal fees. And they automatically know to zip it. And it's all perfectly legal. It would be next to impossible for Jack Smith, the special counsel, to stop Trump from taking money out of his super PAC to pay the legal fees for potential witnesses for the prosecution. Okay, but there are reports that Jack Smith, the special counsel, is looking into Trump's super PAC And like I said, possibly charging the PAC, the super PAC, along with Donald Trump, charging them with wire fraud. There is the possibility that Trump will be indicted this week for deceiving donors to his super PAC by convincing them the 2020 election was stolen. Wire fraud. You use email and the Internet to collect these donations based on a lie. That is wire fraud. And wire fraud in this instance wouldn't be that difficult for special counsel Jack Smith to prove. Special counsel Jack Smith could indict Trump on wire fraud for soliciting donations right after the election while he was still president, soliciting donations Over the Internet, through email, soliciting donations based on a lie. It is illegal to raise money making false claims. It is a false claim to say you must donate. Please donate because the 2020 presidential election has been stolen and I need your money to prove that. That is a false claim. And all special counsel Jack Smith would need to do is establish Trump's state of mind immediately after the 2020 presidential election when the solicitation for those donations began. If Jack Smith can establish that Trump knew he lost the 2020 election, but used the Internet and email 
to tell potential donors that the election was stolen from him. If he used the Internet to accept donations based on that lie, it's wire fraud. There are countless reports that Smith's grand jury heard testimony from Trump's closest advisors as to Trump's state of mind in the lead up to January 6th while he was soliciting those donations. We are hearing reports that Jack Smith, the special counsel, can establish that Trump immediately after Election Day knew he lost. And if Trump knew he lost, if he told his closest friends and associates after the election that he knew he lost, you can get him on wire fraud. Chris Christie, who served as Trump's 2020 debate coach, said publicly last week that Trump told him he knew he lost. Cassidy Hutchinson, who worked for Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified before the January 6th committee last year that Trump, after the election, openly acknowledged that he lost. Alyssa Farah, who worked in Trump's communications department, also told the January 6th committee that Trump admitted right after the election that Biden beat him. So special counsel Jack Smith should have no problem convincing a jury that Trump knew he lost. He knew the stop the steal claims were a lie but still use the Internet to raise money, lying to donors, claiming he needed donations to stop a steal that didn't exist. Wire fraud. So wire fraud was not mentioned in the target letter. There are three uh, federal statutes referenced in the target letter sent to Trump. As I said, wire fraud is not one of them. I'm going to go over these three statutes because. Because uh, it's kind of interesting and uh, confusing. Uh, so the first statue Jack Smith seems to be focusing on, according to the target letter, is conspiracy to defraud the United States government. What does that mean? That that involves the fake elector scheme in which Donald Trump conspired with his legal team to create an alternative slate of electors from battleground states Trump had lost to Biden. The idea was send alternative electors to Congress. The phony elector scheme could result in Trump being charged with conspiring to defraud the government. And as I pointed out yesterday, if you want to understand the phony elector scheme, pay attention to the Michigan state attorney general who yesterday indicted 16 fake electors in Michigan for conspiring to defraud the federal government by forging documents and lying about Michigan's election results, lying, claiming that Trump, not Joe Biden, won the popular vote. Michigan has 16 electoral votes. They all went to Joe Biden. The Michigan state attorney on what the hell? Well, uh, we had some Internet problems and I'm back. 
let me continue. Uh, so we reported yesterday on the Michigan State Attorney General indicting 16 fake electors uh, in Michigan for conspiring to defraud the federal government by forging documents and lying about Michigan's election results, claiming Trump, not Joe Biden, won the popular vote. Michigan has 16 electoral votes. They all went to Joe Biden. The Michigan State Attorney General, therefore, has indicted all 16 of the phony electors who met illegally in the basement of the Michigan Republican Party headquarters to sign phony and forged documents claiming to be the rightful slate of electors who should be presented to Congress. That is conspiracy to defraud the government. And you know, it didn't start in Michigan. I talked about this yesterday. This conspiracy came from Trump and his associates in the White House. The 16 indicted phony electors are going to flip and tell the state attorney general who orchestrated this. Okay. The other statute in the target letter is pretty much straightforward, and that is witness tampering. Witness tampering. There's a distinct possibility that Donald Trump will be indicted this week for witness tampering. We saw that in last year's January 6th committee hearings when Liz Cheney openly accused Donald Trump of trying to silence several witnesses uh, who... uh, then refused to testify before the January 6th committee. That is witness tampering. It gets even worse. Cassidy Hutchinson worked for Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. She testified before the January 6th committee last year that Trump provided her free of charge with an attorney who prepped her for the January 6th committee hearings. That attorney's name was Stefan Passantino. But she fired him because, she claims, he was advising her to mislead the committee. Passantino denies he told Cassidy Hutchinson to lie before the January 6th committee. But the January 6th committee recommended in their final report that the Justice Department investigate lawyer Stefan Pacentino for possible witness tampering. In April of this year, Pacentino sued the January 6th committee, which doesn't exist anymore, but he sued them anyway for spreading a false narrative about him. Witness tampering, right? But in March of this year, Several dozen top attorneys, including past presidents of the American Bar Association and the District of Columbia Bar Association, they announced that they would seek to revoke Pasentino's law license. In a complaint before Washington, D.C.'s board on professional responsibility, in this complaint, all these top legal minds accused Pasentino of the following crimes— Subordination of perjury, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, and bribery. Bribery, yes. The bribery, according to this complaint, was Pasentino, the lawyer for Trump, promising Cassidy Hutchinson that if she kept her mouth shut before the January 6th committee, she would, quote, 
get a really good job in Trump world, quote unquote, Trump world, Trump world, right? Pasentino took a leave of absence from his law firm. And in January of this year, he landed a really good job in Trump world. He's working for the Trump organization. Keep your mouth shut. You get a job in Trump world. Meanwhile, lawyers defending American democracy have also filed a complaint against Pasentino in New York and Georgia, where Pasentino has been admitted to the bar. It's really hard to disbar lawyers here in the United States. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, says Trump engaged in witness tampering, attempting to strong arm him and intimidate him into not testifying against the Trump organization. Now, according to The Washington Post, it is rare for the Justice Department to bring charges of witness tampering when it comes to testimony before a congressional committee, even though witnesses before a a congressional committee are sworn in under oath with the threat of perjury. It does happen. Roger Stone was pardoned by Donald Trump after he was prosecuted and found guilty of witness tampering. Roger Stone had to be pardoned by Donald Trump for witness tampering. If you remember, he tried to intimidate friend of our show, Randy Credico, the great comedian and political activist. Credico was at Credico. Randy Credico was friendly with Roger Stone and Credico was asked to testify before the House Intelligence Committee back in 2017 about the role Roger Stone played in coordinating with WikiLeaks to release embarrassing emails that Russian hackers Retrieved from a Democratic Party headquarters server. Remember that? The emails, the WikiLeaks emails that the Russians got from hacking into the DNC. Those emails served as a major embarrassment for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. It exposed the emails exposed how she conspired with the DNC to rig the primaries against Bernie Sanders. Well, uh. Roger Stone didn't want Randy Credico to talk about Julian Assange, WikiLeaks and the role Roger Stone might have played in all that. And he got convicted for witness tampering. Roger Stone, Trump, as I said, had to pardon him, but they did get him for witness tampering. And I I think Roger Stone threatened to kill Randy Credico's dog if he testified against him, I think so. Yeah. Witness tampering. That's mentioned in the target letter. It's pretty straightforward. And that seems to be what special counsel Jack Smith will be zeroing in on when he arrests Trump supposedly today or tomorrow. The third federal statute is deprivation of rights under color of law. And it it sounds more confusing than it is. Stay with me on this because uh, it's kind of interesting. So color of law, deprivation of rights under color of law, color of law 
means legal authority. Of course, you know, you can't say that because these lawyers who write these laws spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a fancy education. So they can't use terms like legal authority. They have to say color of law. So only people with fancy educations can understand this shit. Color of law means legal authority. For example, every time a police officer, excuse me, I need some water. Every time a police officer pulls you over, they are acting under the color of law, which means they have a legal authority granted to them by the Constitution as well as state and local law. And because a police officer is acting under the color of law, they are forbidden from using that legal authority or the color of the law to violate someone's constitutional rights. Okay, this is a law that dates back to right after the Civil War, I think. Right. For example, under the color of the law, a police officer can pull you over, but he can't arrest you without probable cause. That would be deprivation of rights under color of the law. Rewind this to hear this again, because it's a little uh, complicated. Um, Now, this law applies to the president of the United States. The president has the legal authority, the color of law, to perform countless duties, right? If a president uses the authority granted to him by the Constitution or by a federal law, if he uses, according to this law that is mentioned in the target letter, if the president of the United States uses his authority, his legal authority as president of the United States to deprive any Americans of their constitutional rights, then he is in violation of this federal statute, which might be one of the laws Jack Smith is reportedly going to apply in order to indict Donald Trump. Again, this is the statute of of the three statutes I've mentioned. This is the one that is most difficult for most of us to understand. There are a host of reasons you can charge Trump with deprivation of rights, constitutional rights under the color of the law. For example, if you are an elector, if you're a a an elector, you know, in the electoral college, Donald Trump could be accused of depriving you of your constitutional right to serve as an elector if he engages in trying to stop the certification of a presidential election on January 6, 2021. He is using his his authority as president to deprive voters of their constitutional right to have their vote counted. If Donald Trump uses his legal authority to stop the certification 
of the presidential election on 2020. He is depriving Congress, members of Congress, of their constitutional right to name, to certify a presidential election. This is deprivation of constitutional rights under color of the law. Again, you're not supposed to understand this. You're supposed to uh, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to law school so you can come up with complicated statutes like this that makes no sense to anybody, but nobody's willing to admit that it doesn't make any sense. But let me try to explain deprivation of rights under color of law. This is the third statute that there's a distinct possibility uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith will invoke this statute to indict Trump. For example, Trump used his legal authority, the color of the law, to bully federal subordinates as well as state officials into lying about the 2020 election results. He used his legal authority, the color of the law, to bully subordinates into falsely claiming election fraud. He deprived Congress of its constitutional right to certify the election on January 6th. He did that by ordering what essentially amounted to his own paramilitary thugs. He ordered them to storm the Capitol. Many of these thugs believed they were acting on orders from the president of the United States, which in many ways they were. Okay, Stuart Rhodes is a Yale Law School graduate and founder of the Oath Keepers, and he is now doing time for seditious conspiracy because of the role he played on January 6th. During the trial earlier this year, his attorney said that as Rhodes understood the role he was playing on January 6th, his understanding was that President Donald Trump was under the color of the law, under his legal authority as president of the United States, Stuart Rhodes, Yale Law School, doing time for seditious conspiracy, as he understood it in the lead up to January 6th, the president of the United States was going to invoke emergency powers granted to him by Congress and the color of the law, Trump's legal authority, allowed Trump to deputize Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers to help restore order on January 6th. Someone, if you look at the transcripts of this trial, someone from the Trump White House convinced Stuart Rhodes that Donald Trump was going to use emergency powers granted to him by Congress to invoke some kind of martial law and deputize the Oath Keepers to 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 restore order or God knows what. It was Stuart Rhodes, Yale Law School graduate. It was understanding it was his understanding that Trump would be using his legal authority 
to invoke emergency powers to deprive Congress of its constitutional rights to certify a presidential election on January 6th. And what you what you know, we don't talk about this enough. Under the National Emergency Act of 1976, the president of the United States has under the color of the law, he has the legal authority. He has 136 emergency powers that he can invoke. Some of those powers entitle the president to act unilaterally just by himself. Others, uh, most of the powers uh, require congressional consent. But it goes without saying that in the lead up to January 6th, Donald Trump legally was the most powerful person in America. And under the color of the law, he could and did order his inferiors within the executive branch to deprive members of Congress of their constitutional rights to certify an election. Under the color of the law, Donald Trump deprived electors, legitimate electors, to serve in the Electoral College. He deprived you and me, voters, of our constitutional right to have our votes counted. The only thing that kept the entire system from collapsing under the weight of Trump's legal authority granted to him by the Emergency Act of uh, 1976, the only thing that kept Trump from doing God knows what, uh, what kept this from happening was the large swath of Republican appointees who essentially defied Trump's orders. The system held on January 6th barely because there were still Republicans in the Justice Department and the Defense Department who refused to obey Trump's orders. And one of the heroes, it pains me to tell you, is the odious Vice President Mike Pence. It pains me to no end to say that you cannot overstate Mike Pence's heroics on January 6th. I know. I hate saying this. But the more I read about January 6th, the more I have come to understand that the only thing that kept January 6th from spilling over into the streets across America. The only person who stopped that was Mike Pence defying Donald Trump's order not to certify the presidential election. I hate Mike Pence. I hate to say that he is a profile in courage. Unfortunately, he is. He is a horrible human being. And by definition, that is what a profile in. If you read Ted Sorensen's book that Jack Kennedy took uh, credit for and got the Pulitzer, but it was written by Ted Sorensen. By definition, a profile in courage is a horrible human being, a horrible politician who steps up once and does the right thing and pays a political price for it. By definition, that is what a profile encourages. 
had Mike Pence, I, I hate Mike Pence, but he, had he obeyed Trump and refused to certify that election, we'd be looking at a completely different beast. And it's all because of Mike Pence. Do not tell me that Mike Pence would have been in direct violation of the Constitution if he refused to certify. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me he had no authority. Don't tell me the role of the vice president on January 6th is purely ceremonial because it doesn't matter what the law or the Constitution says. Right. Trump would already be in prison if it mattered what the law and the Constitution says. OK. Had Mike Pence obeyed Trump. The law would not have mattered. Had Mike Pence not certified, it would have opened the floodgates for constitutional mischief with countless lawyers and Republican leaders willing to make the case that Pence did have the authority not to certify. Okay? On January 6th, there was just enough wiggle room in the Constitution in the Electoral Count Act of 1887. I'll talk about that in a second. There was just enough wiggle room for Pence to get away with not certifying the election. It's a case, a phony case, but a case that could be made that Mike Pence would be well within his constitutional rights to prevent the election from being certified. He would have slowed the process down. That was the plan. There was a plan. The plan was to stop the certification, to slow it down. The plan was to slow the certification down to buy Trump and his lawyers more time to create a groundswell in the Republican Party and in Congress and in the Supreme Court to challenge the entire election. The plan was partly to turn it over to the Supreme Court or Congress. If it went to Congress to vote for the president, which was part of the plan, because of the laws, because of the Electoral Count Act of 1877, uh, Republicans, uh, Republicans would have controlled more states than Democrats do. And so Republicans would have, would have been able to vote Trump into office. They would have reelected Donald Trump because of the way uh, states are weighted according to the Electoral Count Act of 1887, the Republicans had an advantage. And so the plan was to create chaos. So doubt. Have Pence not certify. Have Congress vote with Republicans having the advantage. Uh, at the time, on January 6, 2021, 
Congress was operating under the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which was written after the presidential election of 1886, which was a complete debacle. Uh, The election of 1886 was the most disputed contest in American history up until that time. Rutherford B. Hayes, Hayes, a Republican. Republicans were the good guys back then. He ran against Democrat uh, Samuel Tilden, who I believe is from New York. And it was complete chaos. Separate slates of electors ended up being sent to Washington. It was complete and utter confusion. Nobody knew what to believe. There were charges of voter fraud and a commission was established And that commission eventually awarded the presidency to Hayes. There was a lot of horse trading in order for Hayes, the Republican, to get elected president. The horse trading included uh, putting an end to Reconstruction. And so after that, to prevent this from ever happening again, Congress passed the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which attempted to specify how the Electoral College, how the votes are counted. But most legal scholars, and this is where it gets tricky, and this is where it's going to be hard to prosecute Trump. Most legal scholars admit that the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was ambiguous, poorly written, And because it had just enough ambiguities, all it took was a president like Trump with no respect for constitutional norms. All it took was someone like Trump to bring in a cadre of unscrupulous lawyers willing to work the margins. So just enough doubt about election fraud. So just enough doubt about the electoral Uh, What is the bill called? The Electoral uh, What is it? I'm sorry. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 to sow just enough doubt about that bill. uh, Just enough doubt about how much power Mike Pence had. uh, So enough doubt to suggest that he does have the power not to certify a presidential election. So. Here's the thing we need to understand about January 6th. Yes, we all know Mike Pence lacked the constitutional authority to obey Donald Trump's orders and refuse to certify the presidential election. Every reasonable legal mind knows that. But as I said, there was just enough ambiguity in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 for Pence to get away with not certifying the election and turning it over to the Supreme Court to decide, which would have served as just enough of a delay to turn the 2020 presidential election into the single worst constitutional crisis in American history. A crisis whereupon Donald Trump has, as president, the emergency powers granted to him by Congress to do whatever he wants and to declare whatever emergency he wants, thanks to the Emergency Powers Act of 1976. So as long as the Republicans went along with him, which we know they would, we would have been 
into the abyss because we are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of tribes. We're a nation of people all acting in their own self-interest. The law means nothing in America, okay? All it took was Mike Pence to obey Trump's order on January 6th for this whole thing to come crumbling down, where there is just a shred of ambiguity in electoral law. There is just enough of an opening to convince Republicans that Trump is well within his rights to order his vice president not to certify and failure to certify on January 6th would have thrown the 2020 presidential elections into the courts, into the streets, which would, have, which would have thrown it back to the president who would declare a series of national emergencies to restore order. That was the plan hatched in the Oval Office by Donald Trump and his lawyers before January 6th. This is what Jack Smith, I hope, will prosecute. There was a plan to create a constitutional crisis. It's the shock doctrine, right? Naomi Klein, you've read that book. Create a crisis. We did that in Chile. Create a man-made crisis. Convince the media and most Americans the system is about to collapse. And then Trump becomes the white knight who restores order while simultaneously stripping us of our constitutional rights. You saw what happened in Bush v. Gore. Most of the Democrats, we would go along with that, you know, for continuity's sake, for for stability. Right. We would be told uh, Trump is declaring uh, a national emergency because we must assure the bond market that our country isn't going to default the hell with your constitutional rights. You're being childish. Let the adults in the room take power. We have to make sure that America's political temper tantrum, that's what they would call this, a temper tantrum. We have to make sure that America's temper tantrum doesn't plunge the world into a Great Depression. Let the adults figure this out. America, first and foremost, needs to get back to business. So what if Trump stole an election? There'll be another one in four years. Do you want people living on the streets? That's what they would tell us. And most of uh, the scumbags who uh, own stock or own their own homes or have uh, savings and health insurance, they'd go along, they'd go along with it. If you own a home, if you have a job, a mortgage, a savings account, chances are you keep your mouth shut. You call it a temporary constitutional hiccup because the last thing we need is chaos. Can't have chaos. That's how democracies die. This is exactly how democracies die. The professional managerial class, the upper middle class, they go along with all of this to protect their tiny slice of the pie. And I am telling you, whether you like it or not, all it took was that scumbag for that scumbag, Mike Pence, not 
to certify the presidential election. All it took was for Mike Pence not to certify the election. It doesn't matter that the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act of 1877 said Spence Pence lacked the authority. There was wiggle room and wiggle room provides political cover to Republicans like Mike Pence or Kevin McCarthy to decide not to certify. And here's the thing that has flown under the radar about January 6th. And this is really important. There was more wiggle room on January 6th for Mike Pence and Donald Trump than anyone is willing to admit. I'm telling you, if Mike Pence didn't certify, he would have gotten away with it, which is why Congress passed in December of last year a bipartisan bill that reforms the Electoral Count Act of 1887. There was a problem with the Electoral Count Act of 1887. There was an opening for indecent lawyers to provide a constitutional undergirding to Mike Pence refusing to certify. Congress in December of last year passed this bill It was signed into law. They were secretly admitting that Pence had way too much wiggle room on January 6th. He could have said, I'm not certifying this. And they did something about it. In December of last year, they passed this new bill that will prevent Trump or DeSantis. DeSantis is capable of something like this to prevent somebody like Trump or DeSantis from pulling this shit. The law now specifically specifies that the vice president's role on January 6 is purely ceremonial and it raises the threshold for members of Congress when they want to challenge the validity of a state's electoral slate. The fact that Congress had to pass a new electoral count vote last December suggests that Trump and his lawyers will now attempt to avoid prosecution on conspiracy to defraud the government with phony electors, they they can insist that on on January 6, 2021, the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was still uh, still applied and it wasn't clear. They're going to claim that you can't prosecute us for violating a law that at the time was subject to interpretation. I hope I'm making this clear because it's this is what's going to be the news from now until Election Day. Right. We've got gridlock in Washington. Biden isn't getting anything passed uh, until the Democrats get the House back. So it's just this is what. This is what the news is going to be. Unfortunately, it's not going to be climate change. It's not going to be Medicare for all. It's not going to be income inequality. It's this. If or when Jack uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, indicts Trump on the fake elector scheme, you're going to hear a lot about Trump's lawyers. They are the ones who provided 
Trump with the constitutional undergirding for his phony electoral scheme, phony elector scheme. Like Hitler, sorry, like Hitler, Trump was relying on violence on January 6th. But just like Hitler, he had lawyers backing him every step of the way. I'm going to tell you who these lawyers are that Trump had. Uh, Some of them have flown under the radar. Uh, Every step of the way, Hitler had lawyers. He ended up with the Enabling Act, the Nuremberg Laws, which provided Hitler and his henchmen with all the legal cover they needed to convince ordinary Germans that Hitler was coloring in the lines of our of their, the German constitution when he rounded up dissidents, created concentration camps and shut down newspapers. I cannot stress this enough. We are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of people. All countries. There's there's no such thing as laws there. Laws are suggestions. They're guardrails that we try to obey. But in the end, we are a nation of people. We are reliant on decent people who know right from wrong. Mike Pence should rot in hell. But on January 6th, he reminded us, it pains me to say this, he reminded us that we are a nation of people, not laws, because laws can be anything the powerful insist they are. We all know that. We are a nation of people who must be willing to defy orders, willing to defy someone else's bogus interpretation of the laws. People. We are a nation of people. Now, Mike Pence is a bad guy. As governor of Indiana, he passed laws that terrorize the LGBTQ community, HIV. There was an epidemic of HIV in Indiana because of his anti-contraception laws, gay people committing suicide. But we came a lot closer on January 6th than most of us are willing to admit. And if Trump somehow served a second term, everything would have been perfectly legal. It would have been his Justice Department. It would have been his FBI exercising prosecutorial discretion. Nobody would be charged with violating any laws because we're not a nation of laws. We're a nation of people. We rely on the decency and the courage of people. And Mike Pence should rot in hell. But on January 6th, he's the hero. Trust me on this. He risked his life to save this country. Now, I will call him a coward because he he says January 6th was a riot, not an insurrection. You know, he's trying to thread this needle. He refuses to criticize Trump, says he doesn't think Trump should be prosecuted. But when it came to stepping up and doing the right thing, when it really counted, Mike Pence came through, which is more that can be said for most Republican politicians. You've, you've, we forget this. 
hours after the insurrection on January 6, 147 Republicans, including eight Republican senators, voted against certifying that election. Luckily, they were overruled. But the political will was there to hand Trump another term. All the Republicans needed was more confusion, a bigger constitutional crisis. Had Mike Pence not certified, they would have marched in lockstep around him. If Pence refused to certify the election, Republicans and Democrats would have gone to their respective corners and it would have been a battle royale with Trump still the commander in chief, having at his disposal 136 emergency powers. General Michael Flynn, who served as Trump's national security advisor, Briefly, he had to resign after he was caught lying to the FBI about conversations he had with the Russians before Trump took office. Flynn was convicted of lying to the FBI and Trump pardoned him. So in the lead up to January 6th, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, was freelancing, meeting in the Oval Office, coming up with plans for what would come after Mike Pence's refusal to certify. There was a plan. Sidney Powell, Trump's lawyer, was also Michael Flynn's lawyer. There was a plan. It wasn't a spontaneous riot on January 6th. The plan was to create a constitutional crisis, to have rioting in the streets, to have Donald Trump, have people begging Donald Trump to invoke some of his emergency powers. Flynn was drawing up plans for Trump to order the military to seize the ballot box, to seize the ballot boxes. There was a plan in the lead up to January 6th, and all it took was Mike Pence not to certify the election. Doesn't matter what the laws say. Nearly half this country, the entire Republican Party, would have gotten on board. They are on board. They're still spreading the lie that the election was stolen. They're still spreading the lie of voter fraud. All it took was Mike Pence to lie and say he had the constitutional authority not to certify that presidential presidential election. I cannot stress this enough. Mike Pence is the worst human being on the planet, but he saved this country. And if you're confused by all of this, you're supposed to be because this is how Republicans operate. They create confusion. It's part of the shock doctrine. People are stunned. They don't know what the truth is. What I'm hoping Jack Smith exposes is that Trump's legal team was attempting to create the conditions that led to the 1876 crisis where Rutherford B. Hayes was awarded the presidency through a commission. When when there was so much confusion, the presidency had to be awarded by members of the ruling class. Now, You would have to be a legal scholar to gain a foothold on what transpired in 1876. And it was 
legal scholars, degenerate lawyers, many of whom graduated from either Yale or Harvard, who were far too willing to assist Trump in finding, creating loopholes in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to justify whatever emergency powers Trump wanted to invoke to steal the 2020 presidential election. I know I'm a broken record. All it took was Mike Pence not to certify. It's why they wanted to hang Mike Pence. The last thing Donald Trump said on January 6th when he left the Oval Office and went back to uh, the family quarters, the last thing he said is, Mike Pence really let me down today. Now, I'm going to tell you who these lawyers are. I'm hoping that Jack Smith... Uh, breaks with tradition and prosecutes Trump's lawyers. Uh, We have a serious problem with the legal profession here in America. And uh, all these lawyers are uh, facing disciplinary inquiries uh, from their respective bar associations, but none of them has been disbarred yet. This is uh, which which tells you how problematic and corrupt the legal profession is. Anybody who's ever been arrested, anybody who ever went through a divorce or anybody who's ever been sued knows that 90 percent of American lawyers are spineless, corrupt scumbags. We know that. We need to do something about the legal profession. This is John Eastman. He spoke at Trump's rally on January 6th. He's a former clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, good friends with Ginny Thomas, also a lawyer, Ginny Thomas. Uh, This is uh, John Eastman. He penned several memos in the lead up to January 6th, outlining how the vice president could legally refuse to certify The January 6th committee recommended that our attorney general charge John Eastman with conspiracy to defraud the federal government and conspiracy to disrupt a federal proceeding. Eastman, though, has not been charged yet. He is currently facing a disbarment trial in the state of California as we speak, and it's dragging on and on and on because it is impossible to disbar a lawyer in the United States. This is Kenneth Chesbro. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly. Maybe it's Cheesebro. Let's call him Chesbro. Yeah, let's call him Cheesebro. This is Kenneth Cheesebro, Harvard Law. He has flown under the radar. Nobody knows who this guy is. He wrote a series of memos for Donald Trump calling for Republicans to send an alter- alternate slate of electors to Congress, right? This is what Michigan, the, the Michigan attorney general, is currently prosecuting. He wrote the, the memos. He uh, provided the legal undergirding to Trump orchestrating alternative slates of electors in battleground states that he lost to Joe Biden. This is Kenneth Cheesebro. He's a friend of John Eastman. His memos reportedly provided much of the legal heft behind Trump's attempts 
to convince Republicans in battleground states that were won by Biden. He provided the intellectual and legal heft to convince Republicans in the battleground states to prepare their own slates of electors. According to the New York Times, Cheesebro wrote a memo to Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman saying that if Trump, listen to this, if Trump can whip up enough chaos before the January 6th certification, the Supreme Court would be more likely to intervene. There was a plan. The plan was chaos. The plan was so, so much doubt that the Supreme Court would have to take over and decide the election like they did in Bush v. Gore. In October of last year, Lawyers Defending American Democracy, it's an organization of upstanding members of the legal profession, they filed an ethics complaint against Cheesebro for the role he played in organizing the fake elector scheme. They wrote that Cheesebro is the mastermind behind key aspects of the fake elector ploy, including He's the mastermind, along with John Eastman, of the legal theory that the vice president had the sole authority to determine the outcome of the presidential election. Lawyers defending American democracy point out that John, that we all know who John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani are, and they are already under ethics investigations uh, from their respective bar associations, they recommend that there should be disciplinary proceedings for the role that Mr. Cheesebro, Harvard Law, there should be uh, disciplinary proceedings for the role that Mr. Cheesebro uh, played in the plan to sow chaos in the lead up to the certification of the presidential election on January 6th. So far, his law license has not been taken away from him. And I will be very curious to see if uh, special counsel Jack Smith breaks with tradition and starts rounding up the lawyers and prosecuting them. As I said, Hitler used thugs and lawyers. Democracies die not just with brute force, but with brutish lawyers. This is Jeffrey Clark. He attended Harvard and he was a low level assistant attorney in the Justice Department under Trump. Nobody knew who he, who he was until Congressman Scott Perry introduced introduced him to Donald Trump in 2020. In the waning days of the Trump administration, President Trump got to know Jeffrey Clark and. uh Clark proposed that Trump appoint him acting attorney general in the final days of the Trump administration so that he, as attorney general, could launch a full scale investigation into election fraud. Jeffrey Clark was one of the few lawyers, if not the only lawyer in the Justice Department who agreed 
with Trump that former Attorney General Bill Barr and then acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen were dragging their feet on election fraud. Everybody in the Justice Department, including Bill Barr and the guy who replaced him, Jeffrey Rosen, everybody told Donald Trump there is no evidence of voter fraud. But according to what I've been reading and according to the January 6th hearings, Jeffrey Clark, Harvard, said, oh, no, no. Uh, Jeffrey Clark worked in the Justice Department. He said, make me attorney general. Uh, There is evidence that Dominion voting machines were being accessed by the Chinese government through the hacking of smart thermostats. This is what Jeffrey Clark allegedly believed or was willing to say. He was saying that the Chinese were hacking our our thermostats and switching the votes in the Dominion machines. And Trump, in the lead up to January 6th, days before January 6th, Trump was prepared to name him attorney general. And there was a meeting in the Oval Office and Jeffrey Rosen, the acting uh, attorney general, I think O'Donoghue, I think that's his name, uh, his underling, they came to the meeting. Uh, uh, Trump's legal counsel was there and Trump said, you know what, I'm going to replace you with Jeffrey Clark, make him the attorney general. And to Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general's credit, he said, if you do that, you will have no Justice Department. The entire Justice Department, made up of a lot of Republicans, by the way, they will all quit. And uh, they spooked Trump into not appointing Jeffrey Clark as uh, attorney general, acting attorney general. In July of last year, the D.C. bar charged Jeffrey Clark, Harvard, with engaging in dishonest conduct and seeking to seriously interfere with the administration of justice during his attempts to help Trump spread lies about voter fraud in the 2020 election. Now, uh, Clark has tried to tie these these disciplinary hearings up in court. But last month, the D.C. bar got the go ahead from a federal judge to continue with the trial, the disbarment trial of Jeffrey Clark, Harvard. It will be interesting to see what indictments special counsel Jack Smith hands down either today or tomorrow or next week. Democracies die. They normally do. They die when muscle, when muscle triumphs over reason. And there are two types of muscle. There's the physical muscle we saw on January 6th when they stormed the Capitol. But like Hitler, Trump also relied on faux intellectual muscle provided by third rate legal minds who feel slighted by the system. I went to Harvard. Why am I a lowly assistant attorney general? Democracies don't die solely at the end. Uh, uh, Democracies don't die just because of extrajudicial violent thugs. 
democracies are killed ultimately by lawyers. Democracies are killed by lawyers willing to find loopholes, loopholes that don't exist, willing to violate constitutional norms and provide both an intellectual and legal undergirding to fascism. I know you're not supposed to bring up Hitler, but it was the lawyers who enabled Hitler. It was actually called the Enabling Act, by the way. I don't know if special counsel Jack Smith is going to prosecute John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, Kenneth Cheesebro, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood. I haven't even talked about Lynn Wood, who is uh, or was Marjorie Taylor Greene's attorney. Uh, I don't know if special counsel Jack Smith is going to go after these rank amateurs of the legal profession who twisted the law into knots for their own emotional and financial needs. These are highly educated, somewhat gifted legal minds who felt betrayed, left out. And through Trump, they were going to prove how smart they were and move up. Democracy be damned. I don't know when exactly Jack Smith is going to hand down these indictments. Maybe he won't. I don't know. And I don't know what Trump is going to be charged with specifically. I hope I laid out for you what is likely to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I do know we have a serious problem with the legal profession here in America. It is impossible to disbar these lawyers. So far, what is it, more than two years after January 6th? Only Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood is the only lawyer so far who's officially lost his license. Rudy Giuliani has had his license uh, suspended in New York and Washington, D.C., but he has not been disbarred. Lynn Wood is the only one who surrendered his license. He wasn't disbarred. Lynn Wood voluntarily surrendered his license, claiming, you know what? It's time for me to retire. Sydney Powell, she's being investigated in Texas, still hasn't been disbarred. John Eastman, this disbarment in California is dragging on and on. It is impossible to disbar an attorney here in America. Think about this for a second. If you can't even disbar Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Cheesebro for trying to overthrow the United States government, which seems to be the case. If you cannot disbar a lawyer in America for conspiring to overthrow the government of the United States, what chance do you and I have taking a lawyer before the bar for, you know, phony claims and, uh, fake billing. We have a problem in America. 
with lawyers. 80% of them are scumbags and they are destroying. They are partly responsible for the destruction of our democracy and our ability to ascertain what the truth is. I hope Jack Smith prosecutes these lawyers, but professional courtesy, right? I doubt he's going to do that. Uh, I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak.